Adam Gorightly uh, describes himself as a self-appointed crackpot historian, which is a nice title, and it fits him. He is best known for doing two books on Charlie Manson. The, the most popular one and the most exhaustive one is called The Shadow Over Santa Susanna. And in that book, there are connections that he makes that go all over the place, and some of them are extremely strange. And he also followed that up just recently with another book on the Manson family called A, uh, a Who's Who of the Manson Family. And he followed that book up uh, just recently with a book entitled A Who's Who of the Manson Family. And this just tries to make sense of the cast of characters. And uh, it's only available on Kindle, and everything's hyperlinked. So it sounds like it's an easy way to click on things and look at the Manson family. Hey, this guy has been all over the Internet. He ran his own podcast and did a ton of interviews. He's been interviewed by seemingly everyone in this sort of esoteric fringe that would want to do a podcast on odd subjects. And most of those interviews are on the, uh, the series of Manson books. And in this and I'll include all those links somewhere on the show notes. I'm happy to say uh, you can, if you want to learn about that stuff, you can you can get his books and you can click on those links. But uh, during this interview or this conversation that I had with with Adam, uh, we don't touch on Charlie at all. I think we mentioned him once very briefly. What we do do, and this is exactly the reason I pursued this this interview, is uh, we look at some very odd connections. Uh, with the UFO lore. And these odd connections kind of get brushed over and glossed over by others in in, uh, the research community, or or let me say they get completely ignored by others in the research community. And I wasn't, uh, I'm not satisfied with that. I wanted to dig into some of these odd things and, and it was perfect. Uh, This guy is the, is the, is a wealth of information on this kind of stuff. No need for any delay. We can jump right into the interview. This interview was recorded on the morning of October 5th, 2010. Please enjoy. Hey, I just wanted to say big thanks for for, uh, saying yes to this interview. You are quite welcome, sir. When I uh, asked you to do the interview, I I kind of have an agenda in mind, and part of that agenda is my own set of, uh, like like an experience that, that I'm having right now where it seems to be I'm meeting a lot of people who claim to have uh, experiences that don't fit neatly into the UFO experience. Uh, there is a UFO element to their experience. There is potentially, I don't know what you'd call it, I guess the abduction phenomena would fit into their experience. But also there's other stuff going on that, that, that I'm kind of challenged by. I don't know quite how to fit it in, and I just wanted to run this by you. And the, the little checklist of things that are showing up is, um, you know, beyond the UFO thing, is just, you know dabbling into the occult and then mind control and then somehow uh, either secret government influences or uh, my lab, the military abduction type things. And then it gets even stranger where there's almost this overlapping, and this is hard for me to to try to describe, and there's a sort of overlapping of parallel dimensions in Mm -hmm. this thing where people often have these, uh, oh, just memories that just don't seem real. Uh, they they speak to them as real memories and they and they describe them as real memories, but but they're somehow uh, more bizarre and and it just I trust these folks and I trust what they're saying, but something else is going on. Now, have you had these uh, 
experiences of these overlapping parallel dimensions? I personally have not had anything like that. Um, okay. So, so it's very, uh, very confusing. I don't know where I stand in all this stuff. The, the experiences <laughs> I've had have been uh, in the form of, of just mostly profound synchrony, uh, synchronicities. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then some stuff that maybe sort of could be fit into the UFO abduction uh, uh, set of experiences, though those are uh, I can't say it outright because because all it is is kind of disconnected puzzle pieces at this point for me. So there, that was a long-winded introduction as far as like my sort of framework for this. But you wrote an essay about um, the occult and UFOs. Yeah, and mind control. And mind control. Mm-hmm. And uh, several years ago, that has that piece has to be over uh, well over ten years old. Uh, it was called Ritual Magic Mind Control and the UFO Phenomena. And can you give a little summar- summarization of that? Oh shucks! Um, it's the uh, essay started out with my own experience in the uh, late nineteen seventies. Myself and a friend of mine, under the influence of a uh, certain hallucinogenic that uh, starts with the letter L. We uh, had a UFO experience. I actually saw uh, several UFOs, and I've told this story many times, but if you want me to uh, recount it, I will. Sure, read briefly. Uh, I don't know if it can be done too briefly. Good, then then take as long as you want. (laughs) Um, Oh, boy, we were... uh, partying at some uh, friend's uh, house one night and uh, there was uh, some of this drug around and uh, we were forewarned ahead of the time this was a very strong dose and said we ain't scared so uh, imbibed and uh, not long after started this getting too intense being at this party with a lot of people so we decided to get the hell out of there go roam the streets of a central, small central California town. Well, not so small. And um, decided to, a uh, good place to go to was uh, to walk along the levee. This ditch bank could kind of be away from houses and people. And so before we even got to that, uh, as we were approaching the uh, levee, I said, to my friend, what if we saw some UFOs right now? No one would ever believe us because of the state we're in. We started laughing at that point, uh, somewhat uncontrollably. Oh, I, I can I can imagine. I have and, I, I uh, won't say much, but I uh, I have uh, similar experiences that involve the late 1970s, and that might so be you, similar. So, yeah, you know how that works. So, and during that period, you had. Uh, it was just a cultural thing happening with UFOs. I think in whatever your uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out, and uh, you had the whole Star Wars thing, and uh, there was a huge interest, as there is today, in uh, UFOs, and specifically back then getting taken to another planet or planets, and uh, meeting ETs, you know, uh, there's back then the uh, cultural motif or whatever you want to call it was that uh, they were going to come here and be our 
guardian angels or uh, otherworldly brothers and take us to a better place. So uh, myself and the friend I was with and a lot of us in that scene during that day had that same feeling and the same yearning to be taken off on UFOs. So anyway, that kind of sets the stage. I made that little comment about what if we saw some UFOs? Nobody would believe us. It wasn't uh, 10 or 15 minutes uh, later that we saw our first UFO. And uh, it had such an impact on me at that time that I fell to one knee. I remember that. I still talk to that about my uh, friend. And so I started saying, you see what I see? Yeah, I see it. And we were describing the UFO to each other. And we saw more as we walked along that night. Uh, I forget the exact number, but it probably was around eight or so, all of different shapes and sizes. The first one we saw was your more typical uh, disc-shaped craft, and we saw a cigar-shaped craft, but then they started getting weirder, like uh, almost comical. One was this this weird thing with a multicolored propeller spinning around. And it was, they were almost, uh, some of them were cartoonish, uh, very, uh, they became more psychedelic as uh, we, we saw more of the things. Uh, so we uh, got to the point where we uh, saw this crazy stuff. The last one we saw was like a uh, shooting uh, star in the sky that came down. We were watching it, then it kind of stopped and Covered and turned into a UFO, then that disappeared. And I remember that was the last one we saw. We went, whew, turned around, started uh, walking back, and we almost got, we were just about to the place where we saw the first UFO. We saw a beam come down from the sky, and its source, there was no source it was emanating from. It was just a beam that came down and shone in a spot, and we went, wow, do you see that? Yeah, I, saw, I see that, man, what the hell? I'm not sure what that uh, beam meant. Maybe if we had been <laughs> a couple minutes uh, ahead of ourselves, we would have been under that beam, and something more strange would have happened. Or, you know, I've entertained a lot of ideas what this uh, experience was over the years. You know, initially it was, yeah, we saw some UFOs, ETs, and then I started reading about the uh, subject more and started entertaining uh, different ideas. About a year later, I read a book called uh, UFOs, What on Earth is Happening? And that gave that kind of Christian perspective that they were uh, demons. And I, it was about a year later, I took some more of the uh, drug by myself and went back to that same spot. Of course, I didn't see anything, but then I was also kind of under the influence of that book, how they were, uh, UFOs were uh, demons or uh, fallen angels. And so that was kind of a, uh, turned into a bit of a bum trip uh of course, I didn't see any UFOs that night. So as uh, time passed, I started reading about uh, different theories. I read Jacques Vallée's Messengers of Deception and the MyLab uh, type uh, books, the controllers by Martin Cannon. And, you know, for a while I entered 
entertain the ideas that it might have been some mind control scenario, then uh, the last uh, theory and the one that seems to work the best is that uh, myself and my friend helped conjure these things. And uh, I think it's key that uh, we said to each other, what if we saw some UFOs? No one would believe us. We sort of planted a seed there, it seems. And I write about this in length in that uh, piece, Ritual Magic, UFOs, and the Mind Control Phenomena, which you can find online. And also a later piece just called uh, Ritual Magic and UFOs, how basically under the influence of the drugs, we are doing what uh, ritual magicians and shamans have done for a long time. We uh, kind of opened a door, door or portal or basically opened up a window to see some things that perhaps are always there, but that normal people <laughs> can't see because they are in that uh, state of mind. And it also seemed that the ex- that we were part of that experience as well. We were helping to create it in a sense. And uh, there's a lot of elements to this, though. It seems like there was that trickster influence involved in all of this as well. So in a nutshell... That's my psychedelic UFO experience from 1978, I think it was. Wow. The, um, have you, you've, you're obviously familiar with Terrence McKenna. Well, heck yeah. When, and when I read, you know, then I started, as I looked into this, I discovered the work of different folks who've had this uh, psychedelic UFO experience, and there's a lot more than people than Terrence McKenna who have had it. But, yeah, he was... Uh, definitely an influence as well. There's a short video clip of him uh, speaking, and, and maybe I'll try to link that on the show notes, where he says, um, oh, and I'm paraphrasing from memory here, he says in his, his very, very uh, beautiful sort of, uh, he's a very skilled speaker, that guy, and he says that, um, you know, that he has had these experiences uh, interacting with, you know, what would be perceived as maybe gray aliens under the influence of, of uh, you know, either ayahuasca or heavy doses of mushrooms. And and um, he says that if, if these experiences are retold in our present day and, you know, you share the fact that you were, you know, high on a, on a psychedelic drug, then the the person listening to the story would just out and out dismiss the story completely where he says that no we should actually say that you know th- th- these these drugs can be used as tools almost to access these these realms and we should listen even more closely and more intently when people tell these stories and talk about the fact that they are on um, a hallucinogenic drug oh yeah indeed um i and in this uh the the latest essay, uh, Ritual Magic and uh, UFOs, I'm forgetting what the exact title, I think that's UFOs and Ritual Magic. It, the essay's in uh, a book called Dark Lore, and I basically used that uh, structure from that essay to do different presentations uh, at a couple of UFO conferences. And uh, one thing I looked at, you know, part of it is accessing that uh, state of mind, however you want to do it, and how that seems to be a reoccurring theme, starting with the UFO contactees and moving to uh, present day. And also looking at 
areas that are perhaps power spots and certain years where a lot of this these uh, sightings were going on. And there was a website, uh, maybe it's still active, called temporaldoorway.com, I think is what it was. And it showed peak years for UFO sightings. And I talked about that in the book, how... Uh, like 52 was a peak year. A lot of stuff was going on with the contactees. And if you look at the, those old contactees, really their experiences were mystical. A lot of them were in trance states before their experience or somehow they went into a trance state. And the, and fellow, so I, who, the fellow who was uh, under Giant Rock, what's his name? Oh, yeah, he's just one of them, George Van Tassel. Yeah, but, and he was, he was in a state of meditation, wasn't he, or...? Uh-huh, yep. And uh, the whole group that uh, was around him, they had had uh, George Adamski. He was uh, heavily involved in mysticism, and uh, George Hunt Williamson was, a lot of these guys were named George for some reason. He was another one guy heavily into mysticism, and they used, uh, like, uh, he, he played around with... Uh, Something similar to a an Ouija board to call these uh, whatever they were down UFOs. Another guy, Robert uh, Short, is a famous trance uh, channeler. He was part of that group. Almost all of those. I'm just naming a few. All of them seem to uh, more had to do with altered states and contacting these entities and a lot of times they weren't seeing physical craft they were just uh contacting uh some sort of uh <laughs> discorporate uh, spirits anyway the reason i brought this up this timeline another one peak year was uh have to look at my notes but i think it was 1974 and that's where a heavy um kind of drug psychedelic influence uh came into a lot of people having contact with these, uh, whatever they are. Uh, backing up a little bit, uh, John Keel talked about this, how people in those psychedelic states are more attuned to perhaps uh, see these things, whatever they are. And he talked about a super spectrum, which under the state of drugs, or it could be uh, achieved through a lot of different ways. Uh, once again, trance, meditation, uh, a lot of different ways to access um, uh, those altered states. He talked about a uh, super spectrum where you could see in, open up, it's like, like uh, tuning a radio to a certain wave or uh, frequency, and that's what psych psychics and channelers do to be able to see into these windows. So that resonated with me when I read that passage by John Kill. So getting back, back to 1973-74, uh, you had a bunch of these people who came out of the, the psychedelic movement, like Philip K. Dick, Timothy Leary, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, John Lilly was another one who had UFO experience during this uh, period, and they were all... <laughs> channeling uh, Larry had a book called star seed transmissions or uh, something a title close to that where he was having these experiences this is the same period where Robert Anton Wilson uh, started uh, 
doing some ritual workings, uh, Crowleyan type uh, workings, and of course he was uh, fresh out of the whole psychedelic scene as well, where he channeled certain beings from Sirius. This was the same period, same time, that 73-74 window where Philip K. Dick had the, his uh, experiences, as well as uh, John Lilly was uh, experimenting with ketamine, and that's when he contacted a group of entities called, uh, oh boy, helps to have notes in front of me, but the acronym form was E-C-C-O, and I forget what that stands for, extraterrestrial something or other, but so I think there's these peak periods of times, and if people's uh, heads are in a certain space, and if they're perhaps on a what's called a UFO hotspot, hot then there's a, a likelihood that they could see these things, especially if they have a desire to. So following this out a little farther on this timeline, which uh, perhaps you can still find at that website, temporaldoorway.com. Another peak year, I think, was 1978, and that's when I had my UFO experience. Well, this is interesting because I definitely have a uh, an experience which I've talked about at length in this, and I know we talked about it in a previous conversation, and that took place in 1974. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. so a missing time event in my hometown in Michigan. Yeah, it would have been November of 1974. And then I had a also a very vivid UFO sighting of something shaped like a coffee can out a window. You know, I was in a house looking out a window when I saw it. It was very clear. It seemed like it was fairly close to the house. And that would have also taken place, I think, as best as I can guess, around 1974. Might have been a little earlier, but I think that seems right. Yes, a coffee can. Huh? A coffee can shaped thing. So yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't match the shape of a of like you know it does it doesn't match the shape of a classic disc or a cigar shaper or something that might have been reported. Um, so it was uh, it's kind of an anomaly, um, the shape of it. So uh, yeah, yes, this, this is really interesting. The um, Hey, this is something that I struggle with. And, and how would you define a cult, like an or an occult practice? Hmm. Yeah. The reason I ask is, I mean, is it? I mean, something as simple as, you know, uh, you know, the slumber party where you play with a Ouija board, or is it, you know, actually do you have to like drink the blood of like you know a virgin, you know, at a Aztec pyramid or something? Well, we know occult means hidden, but what's occult mean to me? I guess all those things uh, really uh, shut. Not sure. I guess uh, my experience, uh, my friend and I, that could be considered a cult, at least in the sense that it was for our eyes only. <laughs> we had our secret society of two, whether we wanted it to be a secret society or not. We tried to tell people about it afterwards, and they thought we had gone off the deep end. Hey, here's a question. And you and your friend, have you ever drawn uh, pictures or illustrations of what you what you would have seen? No, haven't. Huh, oh, that would be interesting. And your friend, you're still in contact with your friend? Oh yeah, we're. That's something else. We have a strong relationship back in that uh, period, and still to this day, we write music together, and we got that sort of simpatico uh, telepathy uh, type thing going. You know, you have with a 
close family member or a brother. So. Oh, that's that's really interesting. That that adds yeah. a lot to the story. Um, oh, that would be that would be, I would volunteer the role of, of of playing police sketch artist if you were at all interested in trying to draw something up. Um, obviously, yeah. the memory is now getting it is over thirty years old. Let's let's do that. Yeah. Because we'll you definitely the one thing that you, when you said that the the imagery got progressively goofier, I think almost is what you said, or just it seemed to get almost comical. Yeah, and he he might have a better re- well, probably be best for him and I to get together and or uh, or you know to do it separately, you know, do the first batch separately, and uh, see if the see if your images you know jived <laughs> with each other. God, I don't know how much I remember now. Like I said, I remember the. Uh, classic shaped ones and that goofy propeller uh thing <laughs> well you know who knows i mean it's uh, 30 years yeah. is a long time and, and right so i always thought some type of regression would be interesting and you've and uh, you've never attempted it no have you seen anything else any other ufos in your life no but i've had uh what might be considered some type of ufo or um uh, abduction experience but it was kind of based around uh dreams or uh perhaps uh astral projection whether this had anything to do with ufos and i use the term abduction loosely because i don't uh <laughs> necessarily think that's what happened but uh well let me i'll, I'll share the experiences with you great and I forget uh, which order these happened in. And that's normal sometimes that, you know, like that kind of stuff gets mixed up. Okay, the, the dream experience. Uh, this was probably a uh, perhaps a year after the psychedelic uh, UFO experience. And it was summer, central California, very uh, hot night. So I went outside to sleep at my... Uh, home out on a uh, the backyard in a chaise lounge i think i had a blanket and um so reclining in the chaise lounge and i fall asleep and i'm in a dream and i'm in in the exact same uh, position in that chaise lounge the backyard everything looks the same as it does in waking life you know how in dreams normally things get tweaked and changed around Yes, and I, I keep going. I have almost the same experience in some of my own uh, life events, but keep going. Yeah, so nothing was different. Nothing was changed in the dream, but I, apparently I was dreaming. And from the, I guess, uh, from the west, up in the sky, comes a uh, UFO towards me, <laughs> descending. A huge, uh, like, mothership thing. Everything's lit up now in the back in my backyard from the light emanating from the ship that's getting closer and closer and holy shit. So I'm watching this and I feel a tap on my right shoulder and I jerk around and I wake up and I'm in the you know the exact same position <laughs> as I was before uh, the uh, nothing nothing to change except uh, the UFO was gone now. So that was an odd one. And when I woke up, it was like I was scared shitless, man. <laughs> well, so here, let me ask about the dream itself. Now, describe the 
I don't want to ask any leading questions, but um, you know, how did the dream feel? It felt real. Yeah, and, and did it? Now, uh, this is from my experience. When I've had these type of dreams, there's a there's a sort of heightened sense of vividness. There's, there's a heightened sense of of uh, uh, color and a heightened sense. Yeah. of... Yeah, it it was one of those. It was one of those vivid dreams that I can still visualize in my mind today. And when do you think this was? What year? Seventy nine, maybe. Wow, interesting. That's, I mean, that's over 30 years ago, and you're, you're saying you can visualize it in your mind even to today. I mean, I don't think I can visualize dreams in my mind from 31 years ago. Yeah, it scared the hell out of me, <laughs> you know, right when I woke up. It wasn't something I was freaked out about <laughs> afterwards. But And uh, I never thought of that in terms of uh, an abduction type thing, and I don't know how much I buy into the physical reality of little alien greys coming and abducting people, but that, uh, I bet if you had shared that story with uh, your Bud Hopkins type or somebody who does uh, that type of work, they would say, they would uh, suspect that uh, that was a like a prelude to an abduction experience. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And I've been with, I've actually met with Bud Hopkins and sat with him and told him some of my stories. And my stories are very, you know, they're kind of nebulous. They don't really have any direct set of experience that would say as much. But I, I will say that Bud Hopkins did, uh, like, nod knowingly when I, <laughs> when I shared these stories. And that was kind of unsettling, knowing his his uh, his, his line of uh, research. Um, hey, you also wrote about and talk about the dawn of the modern UFO age, which which can be summed up. I think that the Kenneth Arnold event and the Roswell event happened within weeks of each other. And didn't what's the uh, the one uh, the Maury Island event? Didn't that take place within the same short little window of time? Yeah, the Maury Island predated uh, the uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting, actually, as I recall. But not by much. I mean, it was it was in within weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, pretty close together, and actually, uh, Kenneth Arnold uh, went and investigated the Maury Island, uh, whatever happened there. And how did that go? Come, I've heard that before. And did he just get called in? Did he have some sort of? Was he just uh, someone that that was considered an authority on UFOs since he had seen that set of uh, chevron-shaped things uh, near Mount Rainier in Washington? Well, here's what I think uh, happened, and. You can read about this uh, in more detail in Ken Thomas's book, and that's the book where where um, Fred Crisman shows up as as a as a very odd, mysterious character. <laughs> yeah, and it's Maury Island UFO by uh, Ken Thomas. But um, Kenneth Arnold had his sightings, and somehow he got tied in, associated with uh, Ray Palmer. You know that name? He was the publisher of UFO Magazine? No, he was the publisher of... He he, he did a lot of those pulp-type magazines, and one of them was on, dealt with uh, paranormal subjects. He published all the uh, early stories through the guy who brought forth the story about the Deros. Richard Shaver. No. Yeah, Richard, Richard Shaver, yep. correct. And so... What I think happened, Palmer probably contacted Kenneth Arnold to uh, write up his story for his magazine and somehow uh, got 
Arnold involved in this case, this Maury Island thing, to go check that out. So that that was his involvement. And there was a lot of oddities, like you mentioned, Fred Crisman, and there was a couple of Air Force officers who went out there to Maury Island to pick up this material that had apparently fallen off the UFOs. They called it slag or something like that. And that's something that shows up again and again in the UFO lore. And, and oftentimes that slag is analyzed, and it, it, it doesn't turn out to be that anomalous. Yeah. But th- those guys, those two Air Force dudes on the flight back, apparently their uh, plane went down and they died. And that... <laughs> And Arnold had some weird stuff going on during that, too. You'd have to read the Maury Island book, but it was like uh, Kenneth Arnold was under some type of uh, surveillance when he was investigating that. And wasn't there a funny story where Kenneth Arnold, uh, uh, and and I've seen, like, interviews with Kenneth Arnold. He comes across as, like, a total straight-laced, clean-cut, you know, guy from 1940, you know, the late 40s. But there's some story where he shows up at a hotel and he just sort of, uh, you know, blindly like walks into this hotel in this town, you know, just needing a place to stay. And they and someone in essence says, you know, Mr. Arnold, we have your room ready for you. Yeah, that's that's what I was talking about in specific. It's like they knew what he was doing and they that room was set up and he went ahead and stayed in the room. And the kind of the inference uh, was they had the uh, that room bugged. Because he was he was interviewing people there, as I recall the story. Yeah, this is the same thing that I remember also from, and this is and this is I've never read the book, but this is from hearing Ken Thomas uh, being interviewed on on audio programs. Yeah, good book. I think he's uh, working on a new edition of that. So the um, the dawn of the UFO age. Uh, theorized by um, Adam Gorightly as well as the mysterious uh, group that Nick Redfern writes about in his latest book, Final Events. Uh, you know, talks about the uh, the goings on in the desert with Jack Parsons. Mm-hmm. In- yeah, interesting. Uh, Nick interviewed me for that book and uh, used my uh, previous articles as. Uh, reference point for some of it one of it that one of the things i wrote about uh, or mentioned just tying a lot of things together and this uh came from uh, the conspiracy researcher john judge years ago i heard him say this that uh kenneth arnold and jack parsons knew each other and were flying partners and when i wrote that early article i mentioned uh before I reference this, and uh, Nick in his new book uh, apparently got more collaborating information that they did indeed know each other, and that the the group he writes about in the book, the uh, Collins Elite, knew about this and were looking very uh, intently at uh, Parsons during that period and felt that... uh, he was really at the core of this uh, ushering in of this new age of UFOs. That's that's what I talked about in my piece. I just showed that uh, timeline, how Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard and Margie, Marjorie Cameron were involved in these ritual workings around 46 or so, where they uh, were trying to call down certain entities. 
And as you look into this, you come across different uh, information that I uh, forget where I heard it, and I could never track it down to any specific uh, source, but that uh, they had come in contact with beings from Venusia, or Venus during this period, Venusians, who knows, but uh, shortly after came the uh, golden age of UFOs, the modern era, you know, and the theory there is going back to Aleister Crowley, he uh, initially opened this uh, portal or whatever around the turn of the century when he contacted Lom, and that he closed that portal and uh, that Parsons and his group were... uh, messing around using these Enochian rituals, and they opened up this uh, same portal in 1946, but they weren't as adept as Mr. Crowley, and they weren't able to uh, close the uh, portal, and that ushered in the uh, modern era of UFOs. The Enochian magic, uh, we should mention, that came from uh, Dr. Uh, John Dee, the Elizabethan magician, and Crowley picked up on that stuff. And what they do is they use these Enochian chants. And uh, in the book of, <laughs> getting ahead of myself, in the book of Enoch, that were, I guess were excised from the uh, Old Testament, that's all about how the uh, these otherworldly entities, fallen angels, came down and uh, mated with the... Uh, Earth women that could be interpreted as uh, extraterrestrials, and so anyway, all out of this came these Enochian chants, and that's the same uh, uh, type of rituals that uh, Parsons and his group were using. And later, uh, Robert Anton Wilson dabbled into this these areas, and. Uh, which could have led to his uh, communication with otherworldly entities in 1974. He was uh, doing a Crowleyan ritual when that happened, when he came in contact with beings from uh, Sirius, perhaps. Later, he wasn't sure exactly what he came in contact, but that was the same period that Philip K. Dick had his contacts with beings from uh, Sirius. And if you go back... To uh, Crowley, he talks about those beings from uh, Sirius, and they come up time and time again in the UFO uh, lore. So I'm jumping around all over the place, but where were we? I don't know. This is this is what happens. You have a conversation, you jump around all over the place, and this is that's fine. As we were talking, I'm making some notes, and interestingly enough, uh, this is, you know, I'm not sure how much to read into this, but uh, 1974 and 1947 have the exact same numbers in them. They're just 74 and 47 are backwards and forwards the same. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, another thing I noticed when I was uh, working on that piece about UFOs and ritual magic, and I talk about that timeline, and the, the next critical year, and Nick uh, ended up, Noticing this, and he writes about it in his final events book, was 1952, when Jack Parsons blew himself to smithereens. That's when uh, there was another huge spike, and that kind of began the uh, contactee era. 52 is when all these uh, old contactees, that seemed to be the initial year 
they had a lot of their uh, sightings, and uh, I think Nick suspects, or at least that group, the Collins elite, did that somehow Parsons' death was uh, tied in with all of that. Oh, that's interesting because you know, Jack Parsons died in 1952 in the explosion in uh, his laboratory. Yeah, and then and then uh, and didn't um, uh, Aleister Crowley die in 1947 in New Jersey? Exactly. Hmm. Okay. This is so. This is the, this lore is so rich with these <laughs> kind of with these kind of little puzzle pieces. Uh, you know, I don't know what quite what to make of them, but um, yeah, so. Bizarre and fascinating, uh, and also Aleister Crowley conjured up Lamb or Lam or however you want to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, the the uh, illustration of Lam, you know, is is decidedly like a gray alien, the narrow chin and the great big head, uh, smaller eyes than than would be, um, uh, you know, than the, than the pop imagery of pop culture imagery of the of the modern day gray alien, uh, but but unmistakably, you know, fits into that that uh, you know alien face and didn't well, wasn't he didn't uh check Alistair... this out check this out before you go any further with lamb's eyes lambs however you want to mm-hmm. say it <clears throat> apparently there was a group uh maybe they're still active now Alan greenfield knows more about this and he was associated with this uh group there's a ritual that's used with uh when you're trying to contact Lom, and they'll use the portrait of Lom. Apparently, what happens uh, once you enter into that trance state, and you're uh, staring at, uh, and that was Crowley's original painting of Lom. This ended up in the hands of, uh, oh, who? Golly, Kenneth. Uh, what his his Kenneth name? Arnold? No, 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 no. I'm sorry, I had to. <laughs> Another. Uh, See all these names. Uh, he he wrote book uh, this. Uh, oh gosh, his name will come to me in a minute. He's in the uh, late seventies. Uh, he was a Crowleyan adept, and he wrote uh, a book about this otherworldly contact with uh, Lom and how that's what uh, Crowley was up to conjuring these extraterrestrials. Damn, his name escapes me, but he's the one who ended up with Crowley's portrait of Lom, and he was associated with a uh, group who was involved in these uh, rituals to contact Lom in the, uh, during that period, and maybe they're still involved in it today. So anyway, as the story goes, if you uh, repeat uh, the ritual of Lom, and I think you might be able to find that ritual online. I have it somewhere, but uh, be forewarned, don't uh, don't don't do it. Don't, yeah, no, believe me, I'm 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 uh, I'm, I'm very cautious about this stuff. Because as Crowley says, those uh, critters bite. But they say if you uh, repeat the ritual and stare at the portrait, Mom's eyes will slowly grow larger and larger and larger. Ah, there you have it. Yeah. Anyway, I interrupted you. Where no, no, you? that's fine. And then I was also going to say that didn't wasn't Crowley like. Like using uh, hashish to to sort of get into a you know altered state during the actual Lom event. He used uh, drugs quite a bit. I uh, I'm not certain about uh, you know we're talking about uh, it was called the Amalantra working 
and it wasn't just one specific ritual. He'd do those workings over a period of time, you know. Indeed, he used drugs for a lot of his rituals. He experimented with uh, hashish and uh, different hallucinogens. Now, something that um, shows up in that when I when I spoke with Nick Redfern just a few weeks ago is that um, the this Collins elite was following up. Um, no, I'm, I'm just trying to. No, I'm paraphrasing from memory here. There was a secret government group trying to do research into into psychic phenomena, and in doing so, they were using instead of using you know like a laboratory with electrodes and things like that, where where you know we would have that image of of scientists working in a lab. It was instead using occult rituals to try to enhance people's ESP and and such and the way he tells the story is that that everything went wrong you know like that that this whole group was plagued with with bad luck mhm and um so there's this element within and it shows up in uh, yeah, yeah, you know it shows up in in folks that I have uh, you know questionable how how much to listen to them like um uh David Ike and also oh what's his name um Peter Lavenda writes about this stuff, where the use of occult rituals within the government, and and I don't know quite what where to where this is leading, but there is this. Um, I met someone, and I'm going to keep this person's name private for obvious reasons, and this person spoke about uh, government mind control, and that this person was involved with government mind control. I met this person back east, and and I've been in contact with with them um the story involves overt government mind control from this person's youth as well as uh, occult rituals as well as uh, giant reptilians as well as the ufo phenomena as well as you know some sort of secret government thing all intertwined here and um, I would dismiss it outright as as just the ravings of of madness had I have not you know one read a bunch of other accounts that that match pretty closely and in the um i guess in the last year of my life i have for reasons i don't under quite understand met a lot of people who tell me the very same story uh so all these elements uh the occult ufo's mind control secret government all seem to blend into one and and it's this gets very murky cuz um you know i'm not sure what What's going on there? Where paranoia ends and where uh, the real story begins? Mm-hmm. And have you, you know, looked into this type of stuff any, or have you have you found evidence of this in your own uh, research? Rephrase that question again. Um, I'm seeing this pattern, and I'm just curious if you've seen anything that relates to this pattern, even just a piece of it, where uh, these elements sort of collide all together, and these elements would be UFOs the occult, mind control, and some sort of secret government influences. I'll, I'll see if I can wrap my head around that question and answer it. And, and I mean, it, you know, maybe you can't, and I can't answer it. That's the problem. That, and and I, I'm turning to you, in a way, on, on quite on purpose, because it just seems like the kind of things in your, you know, your line of inquiry seems to match, the, you know, this little checklist. Yeah. So you're asking about... Do me a favor and ask that question one more sure, time. Sure, sure. So um, in my 
and this is not even so much research, but it just seems to be that information has arrived, you know, at my doorstep. Uh, you know, people tell the same story over and over again, and I'm being confronted with these folks, and I'm confused. And this, the checklist of their set of experiences seems to be UFOs, the occult, mind control, and some sort of, you know, government influences. And all these things overlap, and, and, and I don't know quite what to make of it. I've ran into a lot of these uh, stories, and a lot of them come to mind. I don't know if I've had uh, personal experience in that regard. Maybe if I tie a lot of things together. Not so much personal experience for you, or just things in your in your you know research or things. Right. Well, one story that comes to mind. Have you heard the interview I did with a? Uh, purported mind control survivor by the name of Maury. Uh, is that on the Untamed Dimensions uh, podcast series? Yeah. You know, I have, and I'm drawing a blank on it, right? She uh, noted some um, experience she had as a very small, very young girl, where she got sucked into this uh, monarch type of mind control uh, stuff, and all these elements were there, and uh, she noted one uh, story. It occurred, once again, in the California desert where a lot of these things transpired back in the day, and this was sometime in the uh, oh late uh, 40s, mid to late uh, 40s, and she was just probably six, seven years old at that time, and she claims that... Uh, she was uh, used, and so was Jack Parsons. He was in, involved in this somehow, and that uh, she was dressed up like a little alien gray, and they used her as part of this mind control scenario. That that's one little anecdote story. <laughs> I these uh, and this ran, this in the 1940s. This would have been well before the little alien gray had entered the pop culture at all. Mm-hmm. And she said it was just a very crude costume they dressed her up in, but maybe that would all—that's all it would take if the uh, uh, people they were trying to uh, heads they were tr- screwing with were like uh, drugged up or kind of already in some state where they were hypnotized or caused to go into an altered state or become an alter, as they cause them call them. So that's that's one story. Man, James Shelby Downard, are you familiar with uh him? And, and James he's a, he's like was sort of a mysterious uh parapolitical author, essayist that um there was actually some debate whether he was even a real person for a while. Yeah, he he was a real person. One of my books is about him, James Shelby Downard's Mystical War. And he claimed uh going back to the uh 30s, he got uh, sucked into, uh, his wife was taken away from him by a uh, group of people involved in the government who were also involved in the occult, secret societies, and they used her as kind of the whore of uh, Babylon. She was used in all these uh, rituals, and she is kind of a... uh, sex slave and he said one of the these rituals they took place on Mount Palomar 
you know, which tie, that's where Adamski was. And that, that and is that it, where the Palomar Observatory is? Uh-huh, and that they used the observatory somehow. They focused the light of Sirius, <laughs> however they do that, using these telescopes back on them when they had these rituals. So that's where the Sirius thing comes in. Another, you know, crazy story. Sirius seems to come up when you talk about this nexus of all the, these things intersecting the occult and these rituals and UFOs and the government being involved, there was, uh, you know, so you had had these stories about Sirius before where Philip K. Dick and Robert Anton Wilson and Doris Lessing, a science fiction author, they were all having serious communications during the same period, and they only found out later that they were having these experiences at the same time. As I got in looking into the mind control literature, there was this... Uh, a purported mind control victim. His name was, I think it's Marty Kosky. And he wrote a Samizdat document called My Life Depends on You. And I have it somewhere filed away. You might be able to find it online. And he was talking about how uh, he was being, uh, he thought he was abducted by beings from Sirius and they were doing a medical operation on him where they inserted uh, some type of implant but he discovered even during the course of the surgery he figured it out that they were really human doctors in disguise depending uh, pretending to be beings from Sirius it's interesting you know he was writing about this back in the uh, 70s there was uh, a group in France and forgive me once again, it's I can't remember all the names, but they were uh, called the Solar Lodge or something to that effect. And they were channeling, their leader was channeling beings from Sirius. And they got a message at some point where they had to, like the Heaven's Gate, they committed a mass suicide. And so the, Sirius turns up uh, again and again in these type of... Uh, Stories where all these elements intersect, the occult, maybe uh, mind control, uh, and ultimately, you know, these uh, <laughs> groups that crash and burn. Wow, and, and you're familiar with Christopher Knowles. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah he's he, written quite a bit on Sirius, I guess. Yeah, he writes a lot about Sirius and finds it in these kind of, uh, you know, hidden pop culture ways, uh, you know, that where it shows up. And uh, Sirius is known as the dog star. So, you know, he, you know, he takes dog imagery often, you know, fits it in with Sirius. And, and uh, you know, the first thing that, that Obama did when he became president was got a new dog. Uh, yeah, Farah Yerdosa, are you familiar with yep, her? Yep, I, I know, I've met her, yep. Well, you should ask her about Sirius. She she does a quite lengthy presentation on imagery from Turkey and other countries, uh, their flags and uh, even uh, a lot of the symbolism or the uh, different prom promotional logos used by uh, companies. The Sirius imagery comes up again and again, and in the lore of Turkey, it appears that it was the serious beings who <laughs> were behind the early UFO contactees in in, in uh, Turkey. 
and she had her own uh, uh, experiences with uh, and her family members going back uh, many years with beings, reptilian type beings from uh, Sirius. So she's looked uh, pretty deeply into all of this as well. Huh? That's a. I, I don't know. I don't know if she connects all the uh, sinister uh, implications to it, but. Uh, and uh, yeah, then have you the Dogon mystery? I don't know if you remember this. It was kind of a. I think it was in the late seventies. There was a book. Uh, there was an African tribe that had a, uh, these mythologies, and in the mythology, you know, they would very accurately describe uh, Sirius and its relationship to the stars around it and the orbiting stars and such like that. And and uh, and, I, and I'm doing this from memory, but. Um, you know, it's only been recently that we've had advanced telescopes and advanced research where we could look into that, and these ancient mythologies matched uh, in an uncanny way to the newly discovered uh, realities, how Sirius actually fits into the solar system. Yeah, the, the Dogen tribe charted the uh, Sirius and the dwarf star long, long before <laughs> the... Uh... We had telescopes, and before the, you know, the, they were actually charted. So somehow they got information, uh, uh, perhaps from these beings uh, from Sirius. And that, that yeah, that book is uh, the author's name escapes me as well. Boy, you remember who the author of that book? I have was? no idea, and I have never read the book. I've only you know, I'm just I'm just referencing things that I've read about the book. Information came out later that the author of the book is a 33rd degree Mason, so that also comes into the the, the, story. <laughs> oh, the, the, the weird pit. You know, it's so funny because I, I never, I didn't, how to say this, like, I don't want to go down this road, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like it seems like this, this stuff just keeps on appearing before me, and, and I just get confronted with all this information that I kind of want to dismiss, but at the same time, it's like, it is pretty darn interesting stuff. No, it's it's a rabbit hole. Uh, great book written was the uh, Saucers of the Illuminati by Jim Keith. And is it Jim Keith is the fellow who who is uh, didn't is he still alive? No, he died a somewhat mysterious death. That's what I think. He wrote a book called The Octopus. He co-wrote The Octopus with uh, Ken Thomas. Okay, okay, yes. And so um, in his book, The Saucers of the Illuminati, and he wrote that. Oh, man, that was like in the uh, mid-90s was the first edition. He was getting into all of this stuff back then. I'd highly recommend that book if you can find it. Oh, yeah, my reading list just gets bigger and bigger. My (laughs) my books pile up faster than I can read them. I don't know if that answers your uh, question. And I don't know if I can't know anyone can answer the question. It just seems like I've been confronted with a mystery, and and I'm looking at any avenue to try to solve it. Let me share a few things with you. I made some notes here, just so we can kind of catch up with a few things. I talked about, uh, did a little online uh, search here, and the name I was searching for before was uh, Kenneth Grant. And uh, I don't, qu- I don't see he wrote a few books looking into this, the whole connection with. Uh, Alistair Crowley and Conjuring E.T.'s, and it was uh, Kenneth Grant who ended up with Crowley's Portrait of Lamb. I'm not sure if Grant is still alive. And uh, Internet search brought up what's called the Lamb or the Lamb Statement, and that's the ritual I was 
talking to you about people uh, continue to use that, including a uh, group, uh, let's see, Typhonian, uh, what was their name? I had it here a second ago. So there's been people involved in this Islam, Islam rituals, and it's probably still going on to this day. Yeah, they're called the uh, Typhonian OTO. And during the, uh, I think it was the uh, early 70s, mid-70s, people who emerged, one was a guy named Michael Bertois. I think I'm saying his name correctly. And Alan Greenfield was associated with him. Are you familiar with Alan Greenfield? Alan Greenfield, yep. yep. He wrote the uh, secret cipher of the UFO knot. He could probably tell you all kinds of stuff about <laughs> conjuring these entities. And in a funny way, I don't want to know. <laughs> like, this is, I kind of want to like steer clear of all this, but it does seem like I, I just have to ask some questions at least. So. Yeah. Um, then I made another note. I told you about my uh, dream that might have been, who knows what it was, with the UFO and the, something tapping me on the shoulder and waking me up. And here's a question. Do you ever have other dreams like that where you're like in exactly the place where you dream you're being? No. not Well... Let me share some other uh, dreams or something from that period. And I'd say they, they were uh, similar, but these were more astral projection experiences. Even though I didn't quite know they were astral projection when they were happening, this was probably around the same period, 79 or so. Leading up to that, I had read books about astral projection was kind of interesting. I thought that'd be cool to do, astral project and <laughs> fly around and go see something, things in a spirit body. Sounded all cool, right? Sure. Uh, so I think I planted that seed. It might have been similar to the UFO, uh, psychedelic UFO thing where you plant a seed. And I started having these... Uh, Experiences. I'd be laying in bed and uh, apparently in a dream state or who knows, everything kind of looked the uh, same as far as the uh, setting. Nothing was different and I'd hear kind of a, uh, how do you ex explain this, uh, the sound of wind or uh, almost a cosmic uh, wind blowing then there would be a, a sensation of pins and needles in my body then my uh, mouth would uh it would be like I'd get the lock jaw and my spirit would start to rise from my body and I'd be hovering over it kind of looking around the uh, room that's how the experiences uh, started out and I remember it uh, mentioning this to a uh, lady friend of mine back then. She said, ah, you're astral projecting. I go, whoa. And so I started perhaps more intently trying to astral project. And uh, as it evolved, I the same sensation that pins and needles, and I say a sound of the wind or kind of electronic sound mess mixed with the wind, if this uh, 
makes any sense. Sure, sure. I could see like if you were doing a special effect for a for a TV show and you wanted to do that, you would you would come up with a a, a wind like special effect sound. And so th- that would happen before I would leave my body. And uh, some of the later experiences, I was like flying around my body or around the the room, not quite leaving the room, kind of like a caged bird just jetting all around. And then I'd w- wake up from it. And then uh, as these evolved, uh, the last experience I had scared the shit out of me because it was more, I started hearing voices and uh, they got to be pretty spooky, demonic uh, type <laughs> devilish voices uh, as I was leaving my body going through this experience. And uh, remember, I woke up from the last one and said, screw that, I never want to do this again. And that basically ended those astral projection experiences. I had I had later dreams where I did a lot of flying. I'd leave my body, and these were pretty, these were fun dreams. I'd just be, you know, I'd realize, whoa, I can fly, I can really fly. And I'd fly around the city I lived in and one one of the later dreams, I said, let's just keep flying up into the uh, heavens. I remember I was flying around the uh, universe. <laughs> wow. Was, I bring that up because, uh, once again, you know, with the weird voices speaking to me, the strange demonic ones, that kind of brings up some type of uh, abduction experience or a bad juju. I tapped into something, something I <laughs> hadn't intended to when I started, you know. Yeah, that's, you know, be careful what you, you know, what door you open because yeah. you don't know what's going to rush out at you. Yeah, you were asking about my own experiences, so. Yeah. That, that sums up all the, lot of the weird UFO uh, contacting, perhaps contacting some other, type of entities, and it all happened kind of during that period, uh, 78, 79. And it oh. seems to have directly influenced your the, the arc of your life, just looking at the at the, uh, at the the books you've written. I mean, you've definitely yeah. delved into some, some pretty esoteric stuff. Mm-hmm. Hey, have you followed any of the, um, there's a lot of uh, online stuff right now about, uh, you know, these um, sort of Project Monarch super soldiers that are coming forward now and sharing their stories. <laughs> I've heard a bit about it. Um, that's pretty wild. Uh, there's one guy, and his name's Aaron McCollum. Aaron McCollum, yes, very much so. He's on. He's like I've got his name written on the piece of paper in front of me. He's one. Yeah, he's sort of the most outspoken of the of this crew that seems to have emerged, and they seem to have emerged through um, the Project Camelot website. And I, I'm very, I have pretty strong opinions about that. The uh, folks that they choose to interview on that site, but but um. Yeah, I'm pretty dubious about uh, <laughs> that bunch too. Some of the people they've brought out, and some of the stories, uh, it's like. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, at the same time, is this disinformation? Is this somehow, uh, you know, being put out there to to muddy the the waters? But anyway, go. You were going to say talk about Aaron McCullum. Well, I don't know that much, really. He's one of this uh, group, these super soldiers who uh, who have come out, and uh, all I know about his story, it's very vague. Vague. There was some podcast I listened to. A bit of it with him, and he's like 
They trained him to be some type of amphibian super soldier. Oh yeah, yeah. Like he's that. got all kinds. You get into it. He's he's a alien human dolphin hybrid, and and uh, so um, uh, it gets very bizarre. And it reminded his story in a strange way reminds me of the uh, the stories that Sheikha Bruce shares in her book, as well as in the stuff she talked about in the in a recent interview I did, where um, uh, the the Montauk project uh, has this crazy overlapping of stuff that is just so bizarre uh, mm-hmm. and unbelievable at the same time that there's multiple people coming forward and sharing the same story in her, in her, uh, you know, in her research. And, um, you know, she basically talks about the rabbit hole getting so creepy and weird that she, she just had to walk away from it all. Yeah. Uh, that, that's another can of worms, that whole Montauk, uh, thing, you know, is a possible, I mean, I think there's elements of the uh, story that are probably based on uh, uh, s- uh, something in reality, but I think there's a lot of disinformation uh, thrown into that whole thing as well, and I think uh, Chica obviously got caught in that uh, disinformation loop and perhaps... Uh, was being used, uh, she she probably agree to that to, to some uh, sure extent. sure. And she tells a story of of basically having dreams and memories of a life she never lived. Yeah, and, and then she also says this is all during the sort of Montauk, you know, uh, you know, spiraling down the drain of this weirdness, and then says she met. Uh, psychics, and at the time she was doing a lot of research and going to these well, like new life expo type things, and and uh, so meeting psychics who would come up to her and then tell her, you know, like oh this is your story, and and the, and instead of telling her story, they would tell the the story of her of her you know memories, her 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 memories that that didn't seem to match anything. Yeah, and that you know the whole uh, Montauk uh, tale is about that they're messing around with. Uh traveling in time and they created all these different uh, uh what do you call them time loops or different reality tunnels or uh you know people going into uh different uh dimensions and whatnot uh basically creating these different realities by messing around with this uh you know these time machines which was basically what the uh Montauk uh, chair was all about. Yeah, and that and that that you know gets into overlapping with almost ritual magic, where there was like during the other interview, Chica kept on referencing like, well, it got really gross, and 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 the Montauk chair, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the person was uh, in the chair and aroused sexually, uh, and uh, and basically at the point of orgasm was when you would have the the ability to to sort of leap to this other dimension. Hmm. I hadn't heard that specifically, but a lot of the, uh, you know, ritual uh, sex magic is, uh, you know, based on, uh, yeah, getting into that uh, state of mind at at <laughs> the moment of orgasm that... Uh, and Yeah, and it's Jack Parsons' story has lots of, uh, I think there was, you know, there was lots of sex going on in Jack Parsons' life mm-hmm. there, so... But um well that's uh she's talked before about uh Preston Nichols. Yes. <laughs> and uh well there was a whole weird 
thing there where there was a group of these uh, young men. I think kind of it was uh, during that period she was looking at it, these a bunch of these Montauk boys, they called them, yep. emerged and uh, were having these uh, Montaukian memories of whatever being abused by this uh, program, Montauk program, and Preston Nichols emerged as their uh, deprogrammer using, uh, the hell they call it, some type of tantric massage. Yes, and I can, I can, I, I you know, like I kind of get the willies when I try to visualize what tantric massage might mean with, a, you know. Well, so. uh, ba- basically the gist of it, he was jerking them off. Yep, that's, that was the gist I got, so. That's probably part of what she was talking about, the grossness of some of the stuff going on. Yeah. But apparently he helped these young men. Who the hell knows? Uh, Preston Nichols is quite a character. Yeah, quite a character. And so is the Peter Boone is quite a character, too. And, uh, you know, I'm, it's, I'm very suspect of the reality of those stories. I mean, the, the, the implication of these stories is that they've opened some sort of interdimensional portal or mm-hmm. vortex. And, and something goes back and forth uh, and, and overlays uh, over, over, like, human consciousness. And, and, you know, so this gets so strange and so murky, and that's a little bit of what I, uh, I struggle with with these folks that have these uh, super soldier stories, because their but, stories are so outlandish that but, they, they might be telling very real memories that they have, but they, yeah. they might be somehow tampered with by, you know, in ways that are science fiction. Well, the disinformation when that's added on top of this uh, stuff totally discredits any discredits or covers it all up. So <laughs> it's like with the, uh, I've heard Stuart Swerdlow talk mm-hmm. before it different. And he has some, you know, he's another one of these Montauk, uh, survivors. And I think Chica said he's a pretty decent, uh, guy, but he also has all these crazy memories that, uh, Maybe they were just uh, things that were fed into him and that he was led to believe uh, disinformation. Maybe he doesn't realize or believe he's spreading disinformation, you know, but it, it's so outlandish. How can you take any of it real like he was sent back in time to kill Jesus Christ and get his blood or DNA so they could uh, use that to... Uh, clone him and all these type of stories yeah which to me it just i mean i just you know my my brain slams shut at that point and i just can't proceed down that avenue at all but uh and that seems like i mean if these people are so vulnerable and such good subjects for this sort of research whether it's you know the mind control i mean if they're using hypnosis and and how many you know trillions of dollars over the last 60 years has been spent on studying uh you know advanced mind control you know, do they just hypnotize these people and say, like, here's your memory? You know, you went back in a time machine and 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 uh, and tried to collect blood from Jesus, or, you know, and I'll and I'll say this this goes into the super soldier stories too. You know, this is, uh, are they, did they, did they? Is the government actually doing these this type of research? And and in order to cloud the research, these subjects have been, and they don't shy away from the fact that they've been you know, uh, victims of government mind control, do they just add some 
some absolutely absurd memories to the to their to their databanks so when it comes time for them to share their story down the road that they purposely you know include these these uh, you know ridiculous elements so you know instead of looking at the at the core of the story everyone just focuses on the absurd you know elements that that would that would lead the researchers astray and discredit seem- them openly yeah. it seems so uh with them all the uh project monarch uh stories some of the material that emerged out of that like uh kathy o'brien and seeing uh reagan and uh shooting smack and turning into a shape-shifting shifting uh reptilian and- yeah <laughs> yeah and then and then i think it's um oh it's not kathy o'brien there's another woman um and i can't remember her name right now but she talks about um you know this this sort of uh project monarch sex slave stories and she tells a story of uh being on a ranch in Wyoming you know Dick Cheney's ranch and and uh, that basically uh Dick Cheney and and uh George Bush Jr playing um you know the most dangerous game you know where they they send her off and they you know they basically try to hunt her down and kill her you know i can totally believe that though <laughs> <laughs> This is Mike. I'm interjecting during the editing process. I just wanted to uh, fill you in that the book, The Most Dangerous Game, was a short story published in 1924 by Richard Connell. And uh, one of the most beautiful homages to that short story was on, of all things, Gilligan's Island. If you haven't seen that wonderful episode, um, it doesn't take much imagination to uh, conjure up the what the costume department uh, had for the big game hunter that arrived on the island. He came to the island specifically for the challenge to hunt Gilligan. And also, as if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think I, I made a mistake when I retold the story from memory. The, uh, the the claims as it was made was that it was Bill Clinton and George Bush Sr. who were um, at some sort of ranch. And, and I'm not sure whether it was Dick Cheney's ranch in Wyoming or not. Um, I may have just... Uh, um, conjured that up out of the out of the ether but uh i find that a little bit hard to believe anyway um i'm gonna give you back to the interview here we go you know i can totally believe that though (laughs) (laughs) i think you're talking about bryce taylor yes exactly exactly in fact i had that written down on my piece of paper here so i just couldn't find it as we were talking i mean and she made references to uh, uh dick cheney's anatomy Yes, yeah, the Donkey Dick Cheney, yes. And uh, there were some photos that later emerged, not of uh, Cheney naked or anything, but... Thank that God. Show, that ...to show to him with a very large, uh, you know what? Huh. Yeah, so um, I wonder what I'll edit out of this program. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, all this stuff, this stuff shows up, and, and, and it may be... Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, where, where the rabbit hole is so strange because it's a it's a hall of mirrors with a quicksand floor, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, other researchers who've used that kind of that kind of language when once you step into this into this realm. Yeah. And you're talking about the, what what you call the game that they were playing with? Bryce? Oh, the most dangerous game, which is which is an old short story from like the 1920s. I think it was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs or something. Yeah. Then uh, later, uh, Dick Cheney ends up shooting that guy when they're out hunting. What the hell was going on there? Yeah, that's yeah. an accident. <laughs> yeah, an accident. Yeah, and then 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 he basically disappears for twenty four hours before he makes a statement. You know whether they sobered him up or or whatever. 
Yeah. Uh, who knows what these people do? <laughs> well, I mean, like, and people claim to know, and, and you get and you get information from people like David Ike. You know that that is uh, is very strange. Here, let me share a story. This is I've, this is I've actually heard this two times from two individual people, and I'll just tell one. Uh, I was at a UFO conference, and the guy sitting next to me, they have these nice sort of banquet things, and you just end up sitting with whoever. And and I turned to the guy next to me and I said, "So, what brings you here?" And um, totally normal guy. He must have been about fifty, and and he's in a very calm, straight way. He says, "Well, I was." had a restaurant with a guy that I worked with and uh as he sat across from me um uh during com- the conversation he just shapeshifted and suddenly I was sitting across you know sharing the table at a restaurant with like an 8 foot tall reptilian in a sort of uh space uniform sitting in front of me and it lasted you know 30 seconds and then he shapeshifted right back into the guy that was with me mm-hmm. and and he says, you know, I I must have been the only person in the restaurant that actually saw it because if you know anyone had seen what I would have seen, the the restaurant would have just, you know, cleared with, you know, everyone would have screamed in terror and ran out. And I've heard that story t- twice from two different people basically saying mm. in the middle of conversation someone shapeshifted into a into a giant reptilian right in front of their eyes. And then one time I heard a, a conversation where a fellow uh, who I'd been in contact with, and he has uh, quite a number of abduction experiences. He said he had the same experience, but someone shapeshifted into a gray alien right before his eyes. And it mm. sounds like this person was just a like, uh, you know, the person that they were talking to didn't have any nefarious. It wasn't like Dick Cheney uh, shapeshifted into a reptilian. It was just you know some normal pal of theirs. And and uh, you know the implication is that this this reptilian being needed some sort of host body and the uh, the story they tell is that the the reptilian just kind of shows up looks around and and uh, just makes an appearance to just get a view of things yeah uh, you add this kind of thing to the mix and and uh you know i'm left you know the the extraterrestrial hypothesis of what's going on just gets incredibly uh simplistic you know whatever's going on seems you know like quantumly more complicated than than just uh, you know little aliens visiting us on spaceships. Indeed, <laughs> I know I, that wasn't really a question, but um, yeah. Have you confronted that or heard of that from anyone? The the just people shape shifting before your eyes. Hmm. No, I haven't. Yeah, I don't know why it's happened to me like three times. So I just yeah, uh, it's uh, weird. You uh, you wonder sometimes why. <laughs> You run into these recurring uh, themes, you know, in your life when you get into uh, this type of research. I mean, I, I haven't had that experience where people are sharing tales of seeing, uh, you know, reptilians or greys, uh, people shape-shifting in front of their eyes. But it uh, seems like uh, whatever, whatever you might uh, latch on to or focus or start... Uh, researching if you're you put some conscious intent behind that you that those type of stories or whatever synchronicities turn up again so perhaps in a sense your interest in that brings out those people to you in in a, in just my interest being like an incantation almost maybe yeah yeah I have an acquaintance that I've met a bunch of times, and and uh, she's her name is Niara Isley, and she has been doing research along 
with Melinda Leslie. Are you familiar with her? I'm familiar with uh, Melinda Leslie. Yeah, she's kind of into the MyLabs. Exactly, uh, thing. exactly. And Niara yeah. Isley is a um, a victim of some sort of MyLab experience, which is extremely weird. And one of the things that um, I won't try to tell Niara's story here because it's so long, but um, her story is a is a mix of all these elements that I've been talking about. She she had a history, like a life history of you know, like a classic UFO abductee. Entered the the Air Force as a you know young cadet, and uh, and then was had these experiences of of uh, you know was almost you know, the implication is that she was almost chosen for these mind control experiments because of her history of you know UFO abductions. Hmm. Her stuff is pretty dark. She has a pretty dark story. I give her a lot of credit because she's she's uh, she's a uh, um, present day. She's very optimistic and very uh, spiritual. And uh, it, it's kind of a relief that she she she's uh, you know if her story is to be believed that she's doing as well as she is so because um, she has a very scary story but um you know in her along with I will even add Whitley Strieber to this where he has stories in his youth of of somehow his dad's involvement in the military as well as uh, um, almost like like a grooming process that was taking place. Uh, with him and other children in some sort of mind control uh, ah, thing with children. Yeah. And that shows up in a, in a series of books and he talks about it uh, not often, but he does share these stories. And then uh, as he, uh, in his earlier years, he was a member of the Gurdjieff foundation. And I'm yep. not actually sure what that is, but it, but um, there is some sort of a cult influence there. And he's also been a lifelong practitioner of both meditation and um, the Tarot. Yep, check this out. Uh, Gurdjieff, and uh, he, you know, he was a, a Russian mystic, kind of a uh, contemporary of Aleister Crowley. I, I don't believe they ever knew each other, but uh, Gurdjieff had a, a system of doing, of chanting. It's called double tone chanting or something like that. I'm not even sure how it works. But he also claimed to, at one time or another, have to have come in contact with beings from, you guessed it, Sirius. Sirius, there we go, yeah. I'm serious. Yeah. And, yeah, so I noted that in uh, the article I wrote. Uh, I brought up uh, Whitley Strieber and his experiences and how he was in involved in that mystical system that uh, Gurdjieff uh, started by using, you know, uh, basically chanting and going into the trance states. And according to Strieber in one of his books, he later uh, used that meditation system to try to uh, contact the gray, uh, gray aliens yeah, I mean this this blending of these elements is is uh you know it just shows up. It doesn't get a lot of uh you know there's a, there's a bunch of literature in the UFO uh you know bookshelves and these connections uh it's only the the fringy sort of esoteric writers in an already fringy esoteric realm that will will go down this avenue to even look at this stuff. But See, I that's the rabbit hole I got into uh, kind of the same one you're going into. <laughs> it's it's a uh, it feels like a uh 
I don't know how to describe it. It just feels like you know, like you're in the washing machine on the spin cycle, and and someone's yeah. sitting on the lid of the washing machine, so you can't get out. Um, and if you step away at one point and start looking at other stuff, but you could just stay in that uh, researching the same subject area and uh, continue adding upon it. You know, I put uh, connected some dots with all of this, but. I barely scratched the surface, I think. And uh, and the strange thing is, and you, and you use the term synchronicity, is that I haven't been pursuing this. It's not like I, I, I've almost like been trying not to look at this. Um, mm-hmm. And and what's been happening instead is is the people I meet, and oftentimes under very curious synchronistic uh, situations, are the people that match this checklist. Uh, you now, know, have, you, have you talked to Andy Colvin yet? No, I have actually emailed him a few times, and 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 he has said, you know, yeah, he would like to do an interview someday. But I have followed up on that uh, whole thing. Here's a funny thing that I did email to Andy Colvin. Have you followed the the news story of? Uh, uh, and this is something I sent to him, and I thought it was funny. The the news story about the woman at the UN who was in charge to be basically the uh, ambassador to when 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 and if there's a uh, you know the UFOs land on Earth, she was tasked with being the you know the U <laughs> you know Earth to alien ambassador i th- i think i heard about that yeah that that's a tough job she's you sit around an office just waiting <laughs> well who knows i mean but so so her name her first name is mazalon or something she's i think she's indonesian uh-huh. and her last name is othman so her, mm-hmm. so if you take her first initial and her last name her name is mothman ah <laughs> i i <laughs> I I brought up Andy because you were talking about uh, children that were groomed in some type of program, mm-hmm. and UFOs were part of it. Uh, that might uh, be what happened to Andy and a bunch of uh, some kids he grew up with. If you're familiar with the story, a little bit. Um, I should let <laughs> have him tell you. <laughs> okay, and 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 I actually I, I remember him talking about it on I think on your podcast i don't i'm not sure if we got into it maybe uh perhaps a bit uh but it all revolved around yeah early ufo sightings and yeah that the same period that kill talked about in the uh, mothman book and how andy and uh some other kids he was growing up with were put into a special program for kind of genius kids or kids with high IQs and uh, anyway the the kids who went through this uh, were involved in this they also had the Mothman UFO experience and and nowadays Andy's one of them and uh, like a a friend of his uh, Harriet she has uh, very uh, high psychic uh, skills and uh, people who merged out of this, you know, were psychics, artists, these type of. And people. that would be one more thing I could add to that list of, of of things, which I didn't even think about until you just mentioned it right now. Is like the psychic ability of of these folks, and and uh, I mean, even Sheikha Bruce talks about her own psychic abilities, and 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 since I've started looking into this, which would have gone, you know, was rolling back only about four years. I feel like um, I've had, uh, you know, like a heightened sense of intuitiveness, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know quite what that means. You know, I've had, 
uh, premonitions that have come true. And, and yeah, I mean, uh, just, and mine are pretty subtle. And at the same time, I have an acquaintance and her name is uh, Anya Briggs and she is a channel and she's very psychic. I like shockingly powerful psychic. And, and, and I've done some, some out and out sessions with her and, you know, all these things collide with her too. All this big, long thing and that list of check on the checklist. Mm-hmm. I have no, I'll just, let me just add here, just, just to make it clear, I, I have no interaction with any kind of occult or government anything. So I, I'm gratefully, uh, you know, uh, free of, of these influences. Mm-hmm. So what are you up to these days? You working on any projects? Quite a few. Uh, let's see, what can I talk about? <laughs> um, is this the plug time? Sure, you want to plug stuff? Why not? Good, 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 gotta eat, so... Uh, let's see. Um, I yeah, I better plug it. I have one publisher. He'd probably be miffed. I have a new. Uh, I've been trying to get away from all the Manson family stuff, but there is one new Manson family related project called the Who's Who of the Manson family. And is this my understanding? It's only out in Kindle right now. Yeah, eventually it'll come out in hard copy, but uh, yeah, just available in Kindle and. My first foray into the whole Kindle thing, and it kind of works good for this format because it basically lists all the different players in the Manson family story, and you know, each one of them had two or three different names. So it helps you if you're researching or reading the books on the Manson family. It's kind of a handy guide to tell you who's who and how it's set up in. Kindle, it's hyperlinked, so at the beginning you can, whatever, click on a name, Bobby Beausoleil, and it'll take you to Beausoleil, or click on somebody's uh, nickname, Sexy Sadie, and that'll take you to Susan Atkins. So it kind of works good in that Kindle format, maybe better than it would in a traditional book format. Yeah, that's interesting, because that, that's something that I've been very impressed with with, with technology these days. Um, you know, like uh, in my own blog, I've been using hyperlinks, hopefully, to the advantage of the reader. Mm-hmm. How and just how are the other books selling? Are you are you making a living off these? Uh, no, they buy groceries now and then. <laughs> yeah, I, <don't. laughs> I, 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 I've published some books that don't have anything to do with anything uh, in in this if realm. I, but uh, if yeah. I had to, if I had to make a living off them, I'd be living in poverty. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I know what. Yeah. So I I have other things okay, good for going, you. but um, I mean, yeah, they all the books continue to sell uh, reasonably well. I mean, this year is probably uh, my best year. Oh, that's far, good. As far as making money, it seems to get better every year. And what I've tried to do is just build a uh, continue to build on a catalog of materials. I got a, approached uh, by a, a filmmaker to do a soundtrack for a film he's working on, an uh, Australian uh, filmmaker, and the film project's called The New Prophet. And if you do a YouTube search for The New Prophet and Sam Fielder, you'll bring up some clips from this movie. Uh, the clips that show up right now don't have any of my soundtrack music in them, but uh, eventually when it's completed, the entire soundtrack will be different music I did for this film. 
And so some of that music I took and uh, thought I'd put out a, a CD, and I did that, and that's available now. It's called Transmissions from a Dying Planet. Yes, and, and I, I listened to one of the songs just, just as I was waiting for, the, for us to warm up for the interview here. That's available on Amazon. So, yeah, kind of uh, trying to get that. I'm working on other music projects with this friend I saw UFOs with way back when. Oh, still? Oh, that's so interesting. How's your blog? What's your the theme of your blog? As far as I can tell, is is an excuse for you to post funny pictures of go-go dancers. Yeah, exactly. There aren't enough go-go yeah. dancers these days. Let me put that that is a truism. I, mean, I think yeah. I think the world is lacking go-go dancers. So yeah, I agree. So uh, yeah, it's just a form to put up uh, different things that amuse me. It's I definitely don't get uh, too serious on here. I'm also involved with a Fortean group. Are you familiar with Lo-Fi? No, but I, I'm familiar with the term Fortean, or Fortean, yeah. as as uh, John Keel would pronounce it. Whichever it is, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, the group I'm involved in is called the League of Western Fortean Intermediates. That's hard to say. Or Lo-Fi. Lo-Fi, okay. That's actually, I like that, Lo-Fi. And if you go to uh, Fortians or Fortian West, Fortians West, I'm not even sure what it is myself, Fortianswest.com, it'll take you to our website. It's basically a group of us in different uh, states, uh, you can check it out, that uh, post different Fortian uh, stories and kind of were a cross between uh, Fortian society or Fortean and uh, the Discordian Society. And so there's a bit of humor there. And there's articles. Uh, the uh, chief of Lo-Fi, Skylar Alphagren, you might be familiar with her. Uh, she put this group together. If you go to the main website, you'll see uh, she tries to get up a guest editorial every month or so. And there's been editorials by Nick Redfern and uh, Brad Steiger. Anything you want to add? I just feel, it just seems like um, we hit most of the stuff on my checklist here. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I would indeed uh, encourage you to uh, interview Andy Colvin. Yeah, that's a, he's on my list. He's on my list. Um, yeah, his story is fascinating. His story is just fascinating. And uh, that the, the psychic that I talked about earlier grew up right near... Uh, in that corner of Ohio near Point Pleasant. Oh. So her name is Anya Briggs. And, and uh, so, yeah, so she's, you know. Oh, is she, is she Andy's age? She would be a little younger. She just turned 40. So Andy, I think, is just in his early 50s, if I'm somewhere like 51. So. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Walter Bosley's another name that comes up. So and I interviewed him. Oh, you did. I did I'll interview Walter. Yeah, out. and I was cautious not to ask him, you know, stuff that had been covered on other things. And and uh, him, he has a very strange set of experiences involving crows. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I have a bunch of very strange experiences involving owls. So we got to sort of commiserate about our bird sightings. Okay, hey, this is Mike. I'm chiming in here separately during the editing process. You know, this interview doesn't really end in like a proper... Uh, it doesn't have a finale like I wish it did. What happens is uh, all of a sudden, uh, 
Adam and I just start rambling about a lot of stuff. Some of it was personal, and some of it does, isn't relevant for this for this interview thing. So, uh, so I wish it had an end. I, I kind of listened through, and there was stuff that he asked me not to share, which I'm not sharing. Uh, and then there's just one little funny little story about Barbara Lamb that shows up, and then and then that's it. I'll chime in at the very end. And then you should also include uh, uh, Barbara Lamb too. Yeah, she's a nice lady. She's a nice lady. She has a very bizarre story. I'm going to jump back to the to the to the uh, giant reptilians, where she had been uh, doing you know ongoing research about uh, UFO abductions, and she was in her house, totally daylight, totally you know not a, not like a, a sighting, you know, a, a bedside visitation at night or anything. So daylight, uh, she walks from her kitchen to her living room and standing in the middle of the living room is like an eight foot tall reptile, you know, reptilian in a kind of space outfit. Uh, and she's immediately like overcome with love. And, and uh, yeah. she walks up to the thing and holds its hands. And like the question she asks is, how come I'm not afraid of you? And it replies telepathically, um, I've been genetically bred, so I don't scare you. And then the next thing she knows is is uh, she's standing there alone in the living room, and now it's nighttime, and something like four hours have passed by. And that is a very funny story to hear from, from you know, sweet, uh, uh, you know, cute Barbara Lamb. Do you have a contact for her? I had her email at one time. Oh, I sure do. I could. I would. I would happily give it to you. So, in fact, uh, I helped organize retro UFO convention uh, a couple of years ago. And was that out at um, at uh, the Integratron? Yeah. And she was part of that. She yes. did a thing on uh, crop circles that was very good. Yeah, she is a very interesting spokesman for this cause, and because she's so like it's she's so like it's almost disarming to be in the room with her. She's so sort of soft spoken and sweet. Okay, uh, whatever went on in that interview, I'm not sure whether it was a mess or whether it was wonderful, and we covered everything that we we wanted to cover. Uh, I did make some show notes as I was as I was going through during the editing process, and I was shocked at how many things we touched on. I hope that uh, it was very good for me to get this information. There was something sort of needy in the beginning where I was like, oh gosh, I'm so confused. I need to like connect these dots. Uh, I don't think the dots can be connected. I don't, I don't quite know what to make of all this stuff. Uh, the the, the uh, labyrinth just goes deeper and deeper and deeper and the connections get stranger and stranger and stranger. And I just think that's a, that's a reality of this subject. I got to just suck it up and deal. I, I want some tidy answer and it ain't coming. Uh, that said, Adam was great and uh, and I really dug his his uh, his exhaustive knowledge into this stuff. If you've made it this far, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much.